Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is caught for a touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In our opening segment, Joe Favorito, longtime sports PR and marketing executive, is going to join us to discuss how Hurricane Sandy has impacted the numerous sports leagues, teams, and events on the East Coast. We'll also discuss the decision to cancel the New York City Marathon. Bill Sykin, who is an editor with Sports Illustrated, is going to stop by. He's the editor of the new Sports Illustrated book, Football's Greatest. He'll join me to discuss the terrific new coffee table book that will have fans debating the top 10 in several categories, including top quarterback, wide receiver, running back, stadium, moments in NFL history, even best football movie. That's coming up later in the show. Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports joins me to discuss the latest news from the NFL. Will Saints coach Sean Payton return next season to coach in New Orleans, or will he land elsewhere now that we know that his contract with the Saints has been voided? We'll talk about that. Maury Brown of the bizabaseball.com stops by later in the show to discuss low ratings for the Giants Tigers World Series. That was a sweep, not very compelling. We'll also discuss the marketability of Tigers Triple Crown winner Miguel Cabrera and what the dollar figures could look like when free agent Josh Hamilton signs a new contract this offseason. A couple of other notes, visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. You can find those links on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm on Twitter, at SB Radio. Brian Griggs, our executive producer, joins me. Griggs, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Enjoying this time of year as uh, football's heating up and we're seeing where the teams are going and which quarterbacks are rising. Uh, Andrew Luck showing that he's the real deal and... Uh, NFL's fun. College football's always fun in November because it's heating up for the big uh, the bowl games coming. I'm excited. Well, and here we are in Oregon, and the Oregon Ducks look like the real deal this year. They trounced USC last weekend. I want to see a Ducks-Alabama national championship. The contrast of styles, two of the most well-prepared coaches in college football, Nick Saban at Alabama, Chip Kelly at Oregon. I just think that would be uh, a dream for the sports fans out there. Oh, yeah, I think that'd be awesome, and... Uh, I know around here in Oregon, the, the SEC battle against the Pac-12 is always heated because uh, SEC always thinks they're stronger, and, and they've proven to be that way in the past, so it would be fun to see two good teams go at it. But it's also interesting, uh, Notre Dame, who has remained undefeated up until this point, they're a big brand, and when you talk about big brands and the BCS championship and TV ratings and ticket sales, if you put them in that game, it's explosive stuff. So you've got to think of Notre Dame remains undefeated. The BCS is going to have a hard time passing on them in the national championship game, no matter who else is undefeated. Yeah, I totally agree. And Notre Dame uh, had a scare last weekend, but yeah, they're solid and their defense is good. And yeah, again, if, if we end up with four undefeated teams here at the end, it could be very interesting. 
All right, I want to update our audience on a few things that I've been working on, some exciting things. I want to invite you to visit my website, everythingisontherecord.com, everythingisontherecord.com. Former ESPN NBA reporter Rick Buecher has joined me as a partner in our media, social media training firm. We've been busy working with several prominent college and pro teams, coaching them on how to be successful with the media and really how to avoid the pitfalls that so many young athletes seem to stumble on with Twitter and Facebook. Griggs, it's amazing how many athletes out there and young people think that sending a tweet is the equivalent of sending a text and a text, obviously private Twitter. You've got reporters and all kinds of people following you. It's always in the digital space. So uh, really trying to work with the young people in sports and even the pros on how to manage that tricky landscape. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, even over the election here this last week, it's just crazy how quickly the news gets out and instantly they hit enter on that keyboard and a million people see it or more in a, in a second. And it's crazy how, how fast uh, information travels these days. So I'm also going to have a big announcement on a upcoming show, hopefully before the end of the year, about our sports PR summit that I've told you about. I'm organizing this event in New York City. It's going to be in May. We've secured a very unique location for our one-day event that will bring together sports PR executives from the various pro sports leagues as well as the college ranks. We'll have information on the event on our website at everythingisontherecord.com, so stay tuned for that. Finally, Griggs, you got to start calling me professor. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> I'm going to be teaching a sports business strategies class at Portland State University in the School of Business Administration starting in January. It's an 11-week course. If you live in the Portland area or nearby and you want to sign up for my class, go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'll have the details posted so you can sign up for the class. You can see the syllabus and see what the class is all about. But the cool thing is, Griggs, is I've worked in the industry for a long time, as people who listen to the show know. So I'm going to bring in some really terrific guest speakers, people who have also worked in the industry and run various sports teams and done things in the different segments of the sports industry. So you're going to hear from the key decision makers in the classroom. We try and bring that to you on Sports Business Radio. Now we're taking it to the classroom. Professor Berger. I like how that sounds. It, it rolls off the tongue very nicely, and I think, I think it'll be fun. And, and like you said, you've got so many awesome connections here uh, locally in Portland with you know the Timbers and the Blazers and the Ducks and all that. So it's going to be really uh, exciting for the kids taking the class and maybe some, uh, some older people in there too just to come check it out. I think it's going to be exciting. I need to get a jacket, a tweed jacket that has some patches <laughs> on the sleeves, and I need a pocket protector stat. Yes, yes, and a lot of pens. A lot of pads, that's right. All right, coming up next, we're going to catch up with Joe Favorito, longtime sports executive based on the East Coast. We'll talk about the impact of Hurricane Sandy and how that really paralyzed the sports leagues out there, the teams, forced the cancellation of the New York City Marathon. Joe Favorito, coming up next, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, 
coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages, and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Joe Favorito. He is a senior sports executive. You can find him online at joefavorito.com. He's the author of the very popular book, Sports Publicity, a great read, and the Sports Marketing and PR Roundup newsletter. Joe, how are you? Good, Brian. Thanks for reaching out. So you're on the East Coast, Hurricane Sandy, such a tremendous impact on the East Coast. And I wanted to have you on this week because uh, you know, you're based in the East Coast. And, and I just thought you'd be a great person to give some perspective to how this has impacted the sports world and, and the world in general. Give me your, your overview and your thoughts of how life has changed on the East Coast since Hurricane Sandy. I think it's an adjustment time now. I, you know, One of the interesting things uh, – Two of my friends uh, who worked with me in the NBA, uh, Terry Lyons and Sammy Steinlight, started a um, a fund over the weekend called Save the Shore um, because it really impacts so many people. And and it's funny, every hour you hear of something else, whether it's uh, my friend Rick Peterson, who is a longtime pitching coach in in baseball, had a delay. He lives on, on the Jersey Shore, and he had a delay his trip to go interview with John Farrell with the Red Sox. For a couple of days because he couldn't get out of his house or you know i saw something before that the staten island yankees and the brooklyn cyclone stadiums were damaged or um you know and you know not to mention the marathon or everything else that goes on plus all the executives you know i, I talked to mike oresco at the big east over the weekend and he was kind of trapped in his house in connecticut for five days in the midst of their tv negotiation with espn so uh you know it touches on a lot of people and obviously kind of the, you know the pebble in a pond is know how it kind of resonates not just across the country but internationally too you know i mean you watched i watched the beginning of uh, a premier league game on espn uh, it was manchester united and liverpool it was manchester united and liverpool i think over the weekend and the first thing they talked about was um hurricane sandy which just blew me away that that you know you'd have uh, you know two brits talking about it you know on air even though it was on espn so pretty, pretty remo- impactful and like you said, so many of the U.S. sports leagues are based, their offices are based in New York and New Jersey. And I would imagine that business for them has come to a grinding halt. And I've seen players like Amari Stoudemire tweet out a picture mm-hmm. of his Range Rover underwater and guys trapped in their houses, like you said. Yeah, I forget who it was. One Andre Blatch, I think, from the Nets got stuck in traffic trying to get to the game the other night because they just didn't realize kind of – you know, how bad the traffic was going to be to try and get to the Barclays Center. So, um, you know, it affects everybody, you know, and it affects everybody from Little League to, you know, just people who are just casual fans. It's really kind of an amazing thing uh, when you think about the impact that something like Katrina had on this country, um, you know, that this could be, you know, in various ways larger just because of the area and the number of people, but obviously, you know, not any more devastating. For those of us not on the East Coast, I'm out here on the West Coast, we've seen the pictures, but try and describe just what Hurricane Sandy left behind. You know, it's funny. I have spent a lot of time on the shore, um, 
And it's very similar um, from what happened when uh, the Twin Towers weren't there anymore. You keep looking for things that just don't exist anymore. And you know that you know you're looking for a landmark that just um, it look just looks kind of strange because the you know the the, the physical landscape of of the land has changed and um, you know this obviously is not a, as horrible a tragedy um, as what happened on 9/11 but it, it's similar in the physical aspects and I think the mental aspects because um, you know there's just a lot to overcome and it's it's just tiring after a while I mean we're very lucky we live in a little bit of a valley in New Jersey but we went I went around the corner last Tuesday morning literally up a little bit of a hill and it looked like a war zone there were trees that had probably been there for 75, 100 years, just toppled over on top of power lines, on top of cars, through roofs. Um, and, you know, and you still don't have, like, I'm in my house in New Jersey today. I still can't get into the city because my train line isn't running. And we had on and even gas days here. So today was an odd day, so I was able to go fill up my tank. So, um, you know, it, it's pretty devastating. And you, the biggest thing is you just hope that the, the recovery is not forgotten. Uh, and that you know, people of influence and power and people in the media are going to continue to kind of beat this home, not just over days, but over months and months and months, because that's what it's going to take. He explained the gas lines, the shopping. Uh, you know, I've read your tweets and other people's tweets. Explain how that's all working right now. It's working better now. I think um, uh, the odd and even and plus, uh, you know, the fact that there's a little bit of normalcy with people going back to work and kids going back, some kids going back to school today. Um, have kind of shrunk the lines a little bit. But I think that there was, you know, just a panic over the weekend. And I, I don't know where everybody was coming that they needed gas, but it was a combination of, you know, stations not having gas and people just trying to get out uh, that really drove these lines, which were hour after hour. And I mean, I literally got up um, Saturday. We have a little call, one of our cars is little. So I got up Saturday morning, literally in the pre-dawn darkness, and drove out to the Garden State Parkway and got on a line. And I was only there for about a half hour. Um, but then I had heard later in the day that the line at that same gas station was probably about two and a half, three hours. When you think that, you know, idling for an hour is akin to driving 60 miles. That's a lot of gas you're burning trying to fill up your tank. So. And what are gas prices like right now? They're the same. I mean, well, actually, I'd seen some gouging, some ridiculous gouging in the city, which I hope the city goes and closes down the places where people are charging like $6 a gallon. But the gas prices really didn't move. Here was like three sixty, three seventy five a gallon. Senior sports executive Joe Favorito is joining me. You can find him online at joefavorito.com. Let's talk about the New York City Marathon because, Joe, I think you could make a good argument either way that it should have been canceled or that they should have let it run. Where did you fall on this, and did they make the right decision by canceling it? Yes, I, I don't think they could have ever run it. It didn't make any sense. I think the brand damage – Everything that Mary Wittenberg has done to build that race, if they would have run it, would have been destroyed even more than, than it really was. Um, I think the biggest challenge, and nobody really knows for sure, I haven't spoken to anybody there, so whether it was the mayor, whether it was the board, whether it was a combination of everyone, really kind of putting their feet to the fire and making sure that they do it. Um, so it, it was just a question of, of you know when they were going to do it. The tragedy really is for the people who came from out of town, who spent a lot of money, and flew here from all over the world. I think if there would have been, you know, maybe an outreach on Monday or Tuesday, actually probably Tuesday or into Wednesday, saying, no matter where you come, don't um, don't come if you're coming from out of town. We'll give you a pass into next year's marathon. Uh, but to have it run la last Sunday would have been just devastating. And I think, um, you know, there probably could have been some more outreach by the elite runners to go and do things. I know Mepka Flesky, 
uh, did a presentation today where he gave away $25,000. Um, so, but, you know, I, I think it just takes time. Um, and, you know, and those things have to happen. So. Well, and you read where there were generators that were there and the generators could have been helping the people without power. Instead, they were going to be going towards the marathon. And there were just mm-hmm. instances like that where it just didn't seem to make sense to have this marathon. Um, I think that there were, you know, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think when the media got a hold of it, it kind of run amok. There, you know, there are some things that could have been done, probably some things that didn't have to be done. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can always look back and say this could have been done, this could, have, you know, that could have been done. But uh, the fact that that if they would have canceled earlier, probably would have diffused a lot of the problems. Uh, but again, you don't know the politics that go into all that stuff. It, you know, it's very easy to sit there and say, you know, oh, we should have done this, we should have done that. And Mary Wittenberg took a lot of bullets. Um, uh, over the last couple of days, but she's a CEO and yes, she's responsible, but she also reports to a board, you know, and she doesn't make those type of decisions in a vacuum. Um, so it just kind of takes time. You know, it's, it's a tragedy all around. Um, you know, it is at the end of the day, it would have been an uplifting race, but it's just a race. Um, and, and you know, and those things can come back bigger and stronger next year, which is more important. By not canceling earlier, do you think the New York Maris, New York City Marathon brand takes a hit? No. Um, I think people remember after a while, um, it's an amazing event that has built some tremendous equity over the years. Uh, I think there'll probably be some short-term pain. Uh, I think that there's probably some more bridges that have to be mended over time. But no, I think it's it's one of those things that can withstand, um, you know, kind of, you know, the the, the kind of decision that that was made. And at the end of the day, they didn't run it, which is really what people are going to remember. Joe Favorito, senior sports executive, is joining us. Joe, let's talk about the Barclay Center. That opening, Knicks Nets, was postponed. That seems to be the right decision, and it didn't seem like there was a lot of backlash about that decision. What was the reaction there on the East Coast? I think everybody thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I was a little bit surprised that um, Madison Square Garden didn't get a little bit more heat for playing on Friday night um, when you know when the power below 39th Street was still pretty much out. So, um, you know, they, they played the game. Um, you know, the Knicks obviously won. It was, for whatever reasons, a feel-good moment. Um, so, but, you know, I, I think over time that, you know, the, the Barclays Center not playing uh, was the right thing to do, you know, and, and you know, the Nets are going to have, you know, quite a, a facility to show off over the course of the next year. So it's it's a positive, too. Speaking of that, the Islanders moving into the Barclays Center mm-hmm. in, in 2015, uh, what's the reaction there locally? Surprise. <laughs> Uh, I think that I, I still I'm a little bit cynical. I don't I don't think that that's really 100 percent done, even though, you know, it's a 25 year lease and whatever it is. Um, I think that, you know, there's still some other things that have to be factored in. The arena has got to be reconfigured, which they say they can do for hockey. Um, you know, it's a really, really small um, crowd, you know, 14000 people. Uh, they're going to have to charge some interesting prices to try and, and, and make it profitable. It's a great move for the Barclays Center and for the Nets. For the Islanders, we'll see. I mean, they lose a lot of equity. They don't have their own arena. They don't have parking. You know, they're they're definitely the third team in a three-team market in, you know, for the NHL. So, you know, there's a lot of things that have to factor into it. Um, you know, the best thing for the Islanders is they probably have a home that's going to be pretty interesting eventually. You know, hopefully that hockey comes back you know, better, bigger and better than ever. And, you know, they have something to point to, which is still two years away. You know, they they have to play two more years right now in the Coliseum, which is really not, you know, the, the greatest place in the world to play, unfortunately. 
just a few minutes left with senior sports executive Joe Favorito. Find him online at joefavorito.com. Puts out a great uh, newsletter every week, Sports Marketing and PR Roundup. You can sign up at joefavorito.com. A rarity in the NFL, the Pittsburgh Steelers travel to the game and travel home on the same day in New York against the Giants because they couldn't find a hotel room. They still come out with the victory. What seemed to be the atmosphere at uh, the Giants game? It was great. Uh, you know, I, I think it was, again, kind of this cathartic release for people. Um, and I really don't think that the traveling, the day of traveling really affected the Steelers. It was only an hour flight, obviously. Uh, you know, you change your, your your routine a little bit, but people forget up until, I want to say probably five or six years ago, the Celtics for to come to New York or to go to Philly would fly the day of the game and then go back. Um, so it's not really that, you know, that unusual. Um, teams do it. A lot of times during the exhibition season, you know, they, they'll go in, you know, if there's a place that's close by, that, you know, they'll go in the day of a game. Um, so, you know, it really wasn't that much of a difference. I'm sure they everybody stays in a hotel the night before, whether that bet is in Pittsburgh or is in New York, it didn't really matter. So, um, but, you know, credit to the Steelers. So. Joe, before I let you go, what can people do to help? I know you said some of your friends in the sports industry have some initiatives underway to help people uh, get through this horrible aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. How can people help? Uh, There's one site that if they want to visit that's specifically um, for everyone in New Jersey, it's called jerseyshorerelief.org. My friends, uh, Sammy Steinlight, uh, who was with me at the Knicks, uh, and Terry Lyons, who is the head of international PR for the NBA, for a long time put it together. Um, All that money is channeled 100% to the relief effort in New Jersey. Um, there's a number of other charities uh, that, that have been developed. Catholic Charities is doing a big fundraiser uh, for the people on Staten Island. Uh, Governor Christie's done a tremendous job and has created his own fund uh, where all the money will go to, to, to the relief effort. And that's really the biggest thing between that and, and just uh, kind of the prayers for people because it's really it's a devastating thing and it's affected not just one community but communities up and down the coast. Uh, and those communities need to be replaced, you know, especially for Uh, you know, any industry or any walk of life, but, you know, the people are going to need relief and it's going to be a long winter. Joe, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Continued success to you. Hope that you and your family uh, continue to uh, recover from Hurricane Sandy. And thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Brian. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports 
in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Bill Sykin. He's the editor of a fantastic new book. It's called Football's Greatest, put out by Sports Illustrated. Bill, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I've got to tell you, I I love the new book. Uh, The pictures are what grabs me right off the bat. Big book, great for the coffee table, those iconic Sports Illustrated pictures. First of all, tell us how the idea for this book came about. Well, what we decided to do was to, you know, kind of pull our longtime football writers and editors, you know, Peter King, Tim Layden, people like that, and you know, sort of get their their opinions on the top quarterbacks, the top running backs, the best games, the best single season teams, and on down the line. And then, but you know, we get those results and use them as the framework for building this coffee table book. You know, take their top tens, go into the SI archives, pull out these classic photos, and also, you know, a paragraph or two from a classic SI story from someone like you know, Dr. Z or Frank DeFord or something like that to, uh, you know, just sort of help illustrate the book. I imagine there was a lot of debate when determining these categories. How long did it take to come to a consensus one to ten? You know, it, it was it was a poll, so the it was more a poll than you know, a bunch of people sitting at a room and hashing out each position on each list. So it was just, you know, the process of gathering everyone's opinion. I mean, in a lot of cases, the number ones were pretty clear cut. You know, Jerry Rice, best receiver, Jim Brown, best running back. I mean, some of, one of the more contentious categories where there was a real division of opinion was the best single season team of all time. You know, people taking the side of either the undefeated 72 Dolphins or the 1985 Chicago Bears. I mean, which of those two would you put as your uh, number one? Well, I'm biased. I'm a big Bears fan, and my favorite athlete of all time is Walter Payton. So I would go 1985 Bears. But I got to tell you, when I saw that, I was a little surprised because, of course, the 72 Dolphins were undefeated, and a lot of people think they're the greatest team ever. So I was a little surprised, but I was happy with the choice. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Walter Payton. Also, Jim Brown was nearly unanimous, but someone did argue that Walter Payton was, in fact, better than Jim Brown and also saw Walter Payton as maybe the greatest football player ever at any position. Yeah, and you hear people make that argument for Jerry Rice, too. So I just think there's a lot of great debate, and it wasn't just about the players that you had categories. You have best football movies, stadiums, uniforms, uh, the best play of all time, the uh, Franco Harris play. Uh, so I thought there was a great mixture of categories here. It wasn't just about best linebacker, best wide receiver, best quarterback, best running back. Yeah, we tried to to mix it up, and uh, I mean, I really enjoyed you know the categories of best games and best plays. Just going back and reading all the old stories, um, you know, and doing the research for the for the book, just because you know it brought back so many memories, so many details I've forgotten, and and all the, the games. You know, that were nominated. There are some classics that everyone remembers, but but some of the guys dug out some ones that I mean, go, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, double overtime Monday nighter. That was pretty amazing. So it was a 
know, it was an interesting walk down memory lane. Bill Sykin, the editor of Sports Illustrated's new book, Football's Greatest. It's a fantastic gift for the holidays, by the way. Uh, I'm always amazed by your archive of images that Sports Illustrated has. Where do you keep those? How many are there? Because there's got to be decades and decades worth, right? Yeah, it goes back all the way to the uh, to the 1950s. I mean, the magazine is founded in 1954, and the archives do go back that far. I mean, you know, and it goes from slides and transparencies to, you know, now, of course, most of the images are digital, but we do have pictures going all the way back, and some are, you know, in the Time Life building, and others are in a... Uh, in a remote location, I, I believe I read that actually the um, you know, the upcoming Ben Stiller movie, I think it's coming out next summer, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, is actually built around a, an old SI photo, you know, taken from the archives. The storyline is anyway. So uh, that's very yeah, funny. There's, yes, there, there's a there's a lot of pictures down there. And like you said, everything's digitized now, so you can probably. Uh, you know, I just picture like this big warehouse, like the last scene in Indiana Jones, where you walk in and they've got uh, pictures, you know, the archives everywhere. I bet they're pretty easy to access now as opposed to maybe uh, before the digital age, right? Well, um, the more modern pictures are, but for, for the old, for the older pictures, it's still a process of physically calling them in. Um, you know, it's uh, if you want to look at a picture from from a game in the 1970s or the 1960s, it, it can take a day or two for someone to actually dig out the the old slides and bring them around. So your Indiana Jones comparison um, is an apt one. There are some great stories in the book, too, and I bet it was fun to go back and unearth some of those. Uh, Frank DeFord talking to former President Richard Nixon about the Redskins. There's a whole list of stories in the book, and you bring those to life and unearth those again. I bet that was kind of fun, wasn't it? That was fun. I mean, finding the, the Nixon quote was fun. One of the more interesting ones to me was Tom Landry is one of our top ten coaches. And until I was doing the research for this book, I didn't know that he and Vince Lombardi were both assistant coaches for the New York Giants in the late 50s. And there's a description of a reporter going to the Giants' offices, and he walks by one office, and Lombardi is you know, studying some film and walks by the next office, and there's Landry working on some plays. And then you get to the head coach's office, and he's just sitting there at his desk, you know, feet up on his desk reading the newspaper, and tells the reporter, you know, why do I have to do anything when I've got those two guys? No kidding. Yeah, that's got to be the greatest assistant coaching staff of all time in any sport, right? Absolutely. I mean, you have our number one coach, you know, is Vince Lombardi. Our number eight coach was Tom Landry. So you have two of the, you know, top eight coaches of all time, one running your offense and one running your defense. And it's no wonder that those 50s Giants did well. Best football movies. How tough was that to uh, narrow down? Uh, well, you know, we, we have a section in the back where, you know, most most of the categories were voted on by the whole panel of writers, we, but we let the writers have a little fun and just pick one category where it's just going to be you. And so our SI.com writer, Don Banks, did the football movies. I mean, my one quibble with Don's list, I mean, I think he in general did a great job, was that he did not include 
Keith Centura pet detective on his list. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> and Dan Marino. You know yeah, no, no one, if you're watching a game with a group of guys, if you're misses a kick, someone's going to go, lace it out, Dan, you know, from the, uh, the line from the movie. So I would have had that in my top ten done. Now, he had, I mean, he had some great selections. He had Brian Song as his number one. He had Heaven Can Wait. You know, he had uh, he, he hit the good ones. I would have just I wouldn't mind seeing Ace Ventura in there. That's funny. Uh, Bill Sykin is our guest. He's the editor of the terrific football book, Football's Greatest by Sports Illustrated. So, again, you've got this terrific bunch of archives at Sports Illustrated. You've done this football book. What's next? Might there be another book coming out in this kind of format for another sport? There, there well might be. It, it's not you know, a hundred percent locked, but the next the next logical step would involve baseball. Right. That's what I was gonna say. I mean there's gotta be such a rich history of articles and pictures and always debate in that sport as well. Yeah, I mean we might have a little bit of a, a challenge there because with football, you know, SI began in nineteen fifty four, you know, while while the NFL existed since, you know, the twenties, most of its you know, important history happened Know, during the lifespan of the magazine, whereas you know we didn't have a writer covering the 27 Yankees. So we might have a challenge there, but we will undoubtedly have a way to, to deal with it because it, Babe Ruth wasn't written about at the time of you know his exploits. He was certainly written about you know from a historical perspective. So but yes, baseball is the next logical move. I just think that's an even more interesting dilemma because you've got the performance-enhancing drug era of baseball and obviously the Hall of Fame debate that rages today with should guys like Clemens and Bonds and McGuire and Sosa be in the Hall. So that would be interesting to me to see how your staffers address the rankings of greatest players at their position and, and things like that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when I was – we've all – you know, we're – People in the sports world, you all see a lot of the list. But I was, you know, when the ballots came in for this football book, I was just found as I was tabulating them. I was just so interested in seeing who, you know, our writers were ranking and who was not just who was going to be number one, but you know, was you know Earl Campbell going to be ahead of Earl of Emmett Smith? Where, where were the guys going to slot? Who was going to be number ten and who was just going to be eleven or twelve and not quite make the list? And I think as we do move on to baseball, we'll be sort of a form of getting those early returns on what do the guys do with Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and all these people who, you know, would be all-time greats, you know, just looking at their numbers, but you have this performance-enhancing drug question hanging over them. So I've got to ask you, uh, Lawrence Taylor or Dick Butkus, if it was your vote, who do you, great, who do you vote for as the greatest linebacker ever in the NFL? Well, you know, it's a challenge because – I'm I'm 44 years old. I saw a lot of Lawrence Taylor games. Never saw, you know, Dick Buckus. I'm sure the first time I saw Dick Buckus in my life, he was a guest star in the Love Boat or something like that. Or doing so, a light um, beer commercial, right? Yes, yes. Or you know, Battle of the Network stars right. or some such. I mean, Lawrence Taylor is the the single most dominating defensive force I've seen. In my life, just as an injury. I mean, I remember watching him and thinking it almost isn't fair just having him play for the other team. You know, he uh, he just inflicted such havoc. So I would, 
you know, I have no problem with the panel selection of Lawrence Taylor as the number one linebacker. And I know Joe Montana, number one quarterback. In your opinion, if you have one two-minute drive, it's the Super Bowl on the line, you need someone to lead you down the field, is it Joe Montana? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, when you talk about championship experience and, you know, this category of quarterbacks, if there's one place where I sort of disagree with the panel, there's one guy who was left off the list entirely, the guy who won five NFL championships and two Super Bowls as quarterback, Bart Starr. And, you know, and he sort of gets lost on those Packer teams with so many other great players, but he's someone who didn't make our top 10, I would have maybe tried to bump up in there. Well, and that's the thing that I imagine has to be difficult. Like you were just saying, I'm 44 as well. So I didn't see Dick Butkus play when he was playing. I just saw the highlights and I grew up with Lawrence Taylor like you. So there's got to be a little bit of a bias here by the panel, because if you didn't watch Bart Starr play on a regular basis, but you did watch Joe Montana work his magic, you remember Joe Montana a lot more than you did Bart Starr unless you go back and look at highlights. But that's never the same as watching someone day in and day out as you're growing up. That's true. I mean, and I think in general the guys did a good job. I mean, if there's not, except maybe in the category of wide receiver, there's not a great bias towards current players, although our number two wide receiver is Don Hudson, who played in the 30s and 40s. I mean, you know, you have people who in our panel who are real students of the game. And so, you know, they're aware that, you know, Mel Hine, offensive lineman from the 30s, you know, only offensive lineman to be named MVP of the league. You know, they're aware that Sammy Baugh, you know, was in addition to being a great quarterback, was the best punter of his day and was an excellent defensive back. So, you know, the history of this game is definitely represented in this book, and it goes beyond the, the lifetime of the panelists. All right, it's Sports Illustrated's new book, Football's Greatest. It sets the all-time top ten in every category, from positions to teams to coaches and rivalries with the best football movies, stadiums, and uniforms mixed in as well. Editor Bill Sykin has been my guest. Bill, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time, and congrats on the new book, and I look forward to uh, future Sports Illustrated books just like this one. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me on. And, of course, you can get copies of the book online at Amazon.com and at bookstores everywhere. Bill, thank you again. Sure, thank you. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thank 
Thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Jason Cole from Yahoo Sports. He does a great job covering the NFL. You can find him on Twitter at Jason Cole Yahoo. Jason, how are you? I'm great. What's going on? Well, just uh, interested with this NFL season, so many different storylines. But let's start with Sean Payton. You wrote a column for Yahoo Sports this week saying that Saints owner Tom Benson better act fast to re-sign head coach Sean Payton, whose contract we've recently learned was voided by the NFL. As you pointed out in your story, Tom Benson, notoriously cheap. Is he going to get this done? Uh, That's a great question. Now, I think he will. And... I would think that cooler heads will prevail and that they will re-sign Sean Payton. But uh, Sean, Sean's a clever man. So I think he's probably going to try and extract some value. In other words, get a little bit more money or some more power out of this whole deal. And the other side of it is he has an unusually close relationship with Jerry Jones, who uh, he worked for from 2003 to 2005. They're very, very close. So anybody who thinks that Loyalty will prevail, uh, and he will suddenly stay with the New Orleans Saints. I don't think understands the circumstances completely. Well, and Jerry Jones is not notoriously cheap. As a matter of fact, uh, he not afraid. He's not afraid to spend money. So you just wonder uh, at what point does Sean Payton say, "You know what? I'm going to wait and see what other offers may come in." Versus, I'll take the Saints offer right now and put this to bed. Right, and and a lot of people say, well, you know, how should he profit off the suspension and all those kinds of things. Like, well, the contract he had was written a specific way for a specific reason, and the issues at hand are important enough to Sean Payton that if he doesn't believe that those are going to happen, I think it's it's a pretty fair question of why would he want to stay in that case. So let's back up for a moment. People may not understand why did the NFL void Sean Payton's existing contract. What's the answer to that question? Well, the answer to that is that he had tied some language in the contract to the stability of general manager Mickey Loomis staying on the job. In other words, if Mickey Loomis had left the team or been suspended or uh, was no, basically no longer the general manager of the team, that would void Sean Payton's contract. And I think that that Sean basically wanted to make sure that he kept the power structure in place the way he wanted it and that he was basically in control of the football you know, operations, in other words, the draft, the selection of players, who they were going to take, those kinds of things. That's what he wanted. Um, and if Mickey had left, that would have taken away a lot of that, that or potentially taken away a lot of that power. The NFL looked at that contract and found the terms unacceptable you know, for whatever reason they believe that that's unacceptable, I'm not exactly sure because they're not explaining themselves, but they have made that clear that that's unacceptable and that that's why they avoided the contract. Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports is joining us here on Sports Business Radio. Let's talk about some coaches on the hot seat because that could also impact whether or not Sean Payton stays in New Orleans or if a vacancy uh, opens up somewhere else. Andy Reid, 
Boy, his days look numbered in Philadelphia. We've talked about Jason Garrett in Dallas, North Turner potentially in San Diego, Rex Ryan in New York. Do you think those coaches are on the hot seat? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, think, I think you had four there. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, Andy Reid, I think his owner couldn't make it any more obvious when Jeff Lurie said that you have to do better than eight and eight. They're three and five. That's not trending well. I don't say that this is a team right now with an offensive line that can make uh, a, you know a quick turnaround uh, and allow Michael Vick to to make any kind of, any plays at all. Uh, San Diego, I think uh, you know, North Turner is just not quite a leader of men. I mean, nice offensive coach. That's why Philip Rivers believes in him so much and sticks up for him all the time. But I think as a as a leader, he's not there. Uh, who were the uh, Rex Ryan? Yeah, on the hot seat, probably the least of all of them because I think his owner genuinely likes him. But you know, if that thing goes completely sideways, yeah, they they could blow it up. And who was your fourth guy? Uh, it was Andy Reid, Jason Garrett, North Turner, Jason and Rex Garrett. Ryan. Yeah, Jason yeah. Garrett. You know, simply put, Dallas expects better. Jerry Jones expects better, and if he can, especially if he can somehow find a way to get a shot at Sean Payton, and Jason Garrett is gone as, as well easily. What about Mike Shanahan in Washington? I was really surprised by his comments after Sunday's game. He backtracked on them yesterday at his Monday press conference. But you know, here's a guy who's essentially saying we're going to look towards the future, and uh, it sounded like he had almost resigned himself to the fact that this was a lost season and a season to find out who's going to be part of the future. And Boy, there's seven games left on the schedule. Is Mike Shanahan the guy in Washington, or do you think they maybe make a change there if a Sean Payton became available? Look, they just took a franchise quarterback, uh, and I, I, I think poor word choice would probably not be used against Mike Shanahan just yet. Um, but you know, look, the, the season is not trending the way they want that they want. But if if you know, if you've seen what. Um, you know, what RG3 can do, and you get a sense that, look, we finally found a franchise quarterback, and here's the guy who took him. I think Dan Snyder, unless he has one of his you know, sort of patented Dan Snyder moments and he loses his mind, I, I would have, find it hard to believe that he would let Mike Shanahan go. Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports is joining us. Find him on Twitter at Jason Cole Yahoo. Let's talk about Victor Cruz, the Giants playmaking receiver in the final season of a contract worth about $540,000. He'll be a restricted free agent after the season unless both sides work out a new deal. What's the latest there with his contract negotiation? Well, they have the framework down, and I think that there's an understanding. He wants to be a Giant. He's from the New Jersey area. He's comfortable in the situation. He's got a quarterback that he wants to work with. Uh He's going to remain a giant. I just don't know what the numbers are going to look like right now. Uh, but here's a guy who has a chance to get that first big paycheck, and that's that's a hard thing for players to get to. He's going to get it done one way or another. The question is how much is he sort of going to give up because he's got a restricted free agent year, and it's going to be hard for him to get out of there because we saw how hard it was for Mike Wallace to get out. Um, this offseason when he was a free agent in Pittsburgh. You know, given that, I think Victor Cruz knows the market's not going to be easy for him to get a contract with somebody else. 
So what do you ultimately settle for with the Giants? Well, and you look at that contract, $540,000. If there's a better return on investment on a player in the NFL for that money, I'm not sure who it is. That's an amazing deal. And obviously it's his first deal, like you said. Let's talk about offensive rookie of the year in the NFL. Most people talk about Andrew Luck, who had an amazing Sunday last Sunday, all-time most yards in a game for a rookie, RG3. But what about Doug Martin? He had a phenomenal day, and he's really come on lately for the Tampa Bay Bucks. Should he be in the conversation? Uh, well, I think it just, he should be in the conversation just because I want to be able to say his nickname, which is Muscle Hamster. <laughs> what? Uh, what is his nickname? Muscle Hamster. Muscle Hamster. I had not heard that. Yeah, because uh, he's tiny. I mean, he's he's really you know, he's five six, five seven. Great. I mean, great kid. Uh, and really, you know, he, he's doing this with a damaged offensive line, if you think about it, because Davin Joseph has been out for pretty much the entire season, and now Carl Nix is out, and, and they lost him the previous game. So, you know, those are the two best offensive linemen who are, who are now gone, and he's still producing those kinds of numbers, which is a testament to the fact that, you know, Vincent Jackson on the outside has been drawing a lot of coverage, and does Mike Williams and you know Josh Freeman's been doing a nice job, but I mean this kid's extraordinary. I mean really, really, truly extraordinary. He is basically the next Ray Rice, as has been sort of uh, you know the, the comparison has been made all along. I, mean, I, I love this player. Now is he going to beat out RG three or Andrew Luck for the Rookie of the Year? No, probably not. You know, it's hard to trump quarterbacks. But he just made it interesting, just like Andrew Luck made it interesting with his big week uh, this last this last week. Yeah, let's talk about the Colts for a minute. They're five and three. Uh, many people had them pegged at four or five wins for the entire season. You see what they're doing uh, on the field, and, and it was an emotional day on Sunday when Chuck Pagano was there, their head coach, who's battling uh, leukemia. I think, is Andrew Luck doing what we thought he would do, or is he surpassing our expectations? Well, they're surpassing in terms of the victories. I think that that's a fair way of putting it. I don't think anybody would have said that here's a team that could be in playoff contention. Certainly not me. Uh, I thought this was, yeah, probably going to be a five or six win team at their best. But it's a mediocre AFC, and things are starting to fall together. But what this tells you is, if you have a quarterback who is smart enough to get you in and out of the right plays and, and get you specifically out of bad situations and not commit lots of ugly turnovers and do stupid things. And we've seen it in, in Miami, too, with Ryan Tannehill to an extent, which is, you know, don't, don't commit turnovers. Just complete the pass you got to complete. In the worst case, if you move us for a couple of first downs on any possession, at least you're giving the, the defense a chance to rest. You're changing the field position to give them some advantages, all those kinds of things that just make you a functional team. And if you're a functional team in the AFC this year, that makes you a competitive team. I guess one more name to throw into the offensive rookie mix is Russell Wilson, who does lead the NFL rookies in uh, touchdown throws this year with 13, so he's also having a very nice year in Seattle, but it certainly helps when you've got uh, beast mode in the backfield with you and you've got a defense like you have on the other side of the ball. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I give Russell Wilson a lot of credit because he's got great presence and a real a, a real heady player. If you watch him, it's not he's not just throwing it up there and and making some things happen. There's a purpose behind everything that he does. And I think one of my favorite plays from last week when in their in their victory over Minnesota was not even a throw. You know, although two of his you know two of his touchdowns you know the passes were very very nice throws, but the the third down run that he got where he showed some great presence at the end of the game with about four minutes left where he picked up a first down that allowed Seattle to, you know, burn more time and basically, you know, salt the game away was just such a smart play. So it's such great presence. They didn't force anything and just and knew what he had to get done and knew what he had to do at that moment to win the game. You know, that's a sign of a, of a terrific young leader now, is he going to be a franchise guy? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not quite on that that train yet. I'm not. I'm not jumping aboard because uh, I I think there may be an upper limitation with him. But he's certainly gone way beyond what any of us thought he was going to be already this season. So you know, he's starting to erase some of that doubt. We're talking NFL with Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports. Just a few minutes left with him. Ray Lewis, uh, he's done for the season. Have we seen the last of Ray Lewis on a football field, or do you think he'll come back for another season? Well, there's a lot of things in play. Ray's probably going to get a pretty hefty offer from one of the networks um, to be an analyst. I think NFL Network uh, specifically is going to want to tie, you know, tie him up and, and pay him a fair amount. Uh, it's just going to be, you know, is the warrior still alive you know, in his soul, and is he going to want to um, push it out there for one more year. Uh, and that's a tough one with Ray Lewis. Um, the problem is, and I think if, if you're the Ravens, you would almost like him to quit because he's just not a very, he's not a very good player anymore. Uh, if you're talking about a full-time four-down player, or three-down player, I should say, not four-down, but a three-down player, he's really not that, that vital in pass coverage and really in a lot of ways in the run defense, he's pretty suspect. So if I'm the Ravens, I'm almost at a point where I just want to rip the Band-Aid and say, okay, we're going to take a little short-term hurt here on our leadership side and some of our you know, some of our defensive play calling, but we're going to finally move on and we want to do it sooner rather than later. I think this is going to be a very interesting strategic play for both sides, particularly if Ray wants to come back. Well, it's going to be an interesting offseason in Baltimore because Joe Flacco isn't his deal up at the end of this year. If Ray Lewis leaves, he's been the face of that franchise. I know Ray Rice probably moves into that role. But what do you do with Joe Flacco? He's certainly not having a terrific year in a contract year. Yeah, we got Pam. Look at, look at how hard it has been for the Ravens just to find a guy like that. Yeah, that's true. And, I, and everybody says, oh, you can't pay that guy 16, 17, 18 million dollars. Well, spend another 10 years trying to find that guy because they couldn't find one. Uh, you know, when you have one, keep him. Uh, that's, that's a really, really important thing to do. Keep that guy. And, uh, and, and don't let, and don't let him escape. Even if that means that you, sometimes you have to overpay. All right, we're at about the halfway point of the NFL season. Two teams under the radar, the Falcons at 8-0 and the Bears at 7-1. and Most of the time when you're talking NFC, people are talking about the Giants, the 49ers, Green Bay. 
Do you think the Falcons or Bears can break through in the NFC over one of those teams I mentioned, or should they be under the radar for the right reasons? Uh, I think they can. It's just when you play the odds out, I always kind of look at the NFL um, you know, the way uh, an insurance adjuster would look at it and say, okay, based on these factors, which guy do I, which team do I favor? Because all of them have, a cha- have some, some level of chance. I think when you look at Chicago, the thing that you question is, is the quarterback going to be good enough to make a couple of plays in playoff situations and tough situations to carry that defense when like, like there's going to come a point where they're not scoring two touchdowns um, on defense or special teams every single week. You know, they've had three games where they scored two touchdowns, two non, I mean, three games where they've scored two non-offensive touchdowns already this season, and they've had another game against Carolina that, you know, they narrowly won where they had an interception return for a score. So that's, that's a lot of non-offensive scores in half of a season. And eventually that kind of luck runs out when you play against better quality teams in a playoff atmosphere. So, you know, you ask yourself, is Cutler able to make those plays? I don't know. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't favor it. Atlanta, you know, their defense is suspect, but you know, Matt Ryan has done such an incredible job of controlling the tempo of games and becoming a big play threat and using Roddy White and Julio Jones that I think that their offense can carry them through for a pretty decent playoff run. And if they get the right kind of matchups, you know, they can they can make a run to a title. But their defense is a little bit too suspect for me and lacking in pass rushers to make me believe they're, you know, an overwhelming favorite in any way. In the AFC, the Broncos, the Texans, and the Patriots. Anyone else that should be in that mix? Steelers. That's true. Yeah, Steelers, that was an impressive Steelers. win. Yeah, I mean, and I know the Ravens are in the first place there, but you know, their defense is going to fall apart eventually, I think, um, if they don't get things together. So, to me, it's uh, you know, Steelers. You know, they're there. They're there all the time. Uh, you, know, you wonder uh, are they going to get their pass rush together? That's the one thing that they've been missing. But if they get their pass rush together, you know, watch out because they're. <laughs> you know, they can certainly they can score points, and they've got a great quarterback who has been through the playoffs uh, a number of times. I just look at the Broncos and their schedule the rest of the way pretty favorable. And if they get a bye in the first round, you're looking at two wins to get to the Super Bowl. And if Peyton Manning has home field, boy, it's always tough to bet against Peyton Manning. Yeah, although there's just something about Peyton's arm that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, if that makes sense. And I just, you know, I, I, I salute him. I love it. It's a fantastic comeback. It's everything you enjoy, but I just, I'm a little shaky on that arm. There's just I don't think he throws with quite the authority that he did before, um, but he has certainly overcome it. All right, before I let you go, Thanksgiving coming up in a few weeks. People are starting to prepare their feasts. <laughs> what is the Cole family having for Thanksgiving? Because I know you're doing something outside the box. Uh, actually, to be honest with you, um, my wife and I are going to go away and just have a couple of days away for Thanksgiving. Ah, very I'm nice. Entertain this year, but however, love to do is this um, pomegranate reduction sauce that you baste over the turkey and you kind of crisp up the skin of the turkey with the pomegranate sauce, and it adds a certain sweetness to it um, that 
really, really amazing. So if you get like a couple of quarts of uh, pomegranate um, juice and you boil that with some sugar uh, and you do that like the day in advance and then you baste it over the turkey the next day, late in the process with about half an hour to 45 minutes left, man, do you get a great skin. All right. I have an idea for you. I've been thinking about this for a long time. Okay. There are lots of guys in the NFL who like to cook. You yep. need to do a cookbook with NFL players. You're the centerpiece of it. You're cooking with the different guys. But that would be a great coffee table book. It portrays the players in a different light. They get to show a different side of themselves. And You're I think you'd be brilliant. On this book. This is the way we're going to do this. I'm not kidding. We're, we're, we're absolutely going to do this. It's brilliant. Yes, it is. It is absolutely brilliant. And you and I will, will put this together and we will, we will sell this. All right, I think it's a no-brainer. Who who like to cook? Yeah, I mean, think about it. On Sundays, that's a home run, and you're making, you know, Victor Cruz's favorite meal with Jason Cole, and it's a no-brainer. So we got to get this done. Absolutely. All right, Jason, uh, take care. Jason Cole from Yahoo Sports. Find him online at yahoosports.com. Find him on Twitter at Jason Cole. Yahoo. We'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages, and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Maury Brown with the bizofbaseball.com. Follow him on Twitter at bizballmaury. Maury, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the world champion San Francisco Giants. Boy, their year reminded me of the 1988 Dodgers. You just got that feeling that they weren't going to be beat in the playoffs. How shocked were you that they swept the Tigers who came in playing so well after beating the Yankees in the ALCS? Well, I mean, I think myself and most everybody else were shocked that it was that it was such a trouncing. I mean, I, I think their team average for hitting was 183, and I mean, you look at the Yankees, the Yankees hit 118. But it was kind of interesting, you know, they, they had Zito go up against Verlander, and I think that, you know, that with the five days off, along with the fact that Zito got past the Tigers and, and basically beat Verlander, that kind of set the table for something like this to potentially happen. But, I'm, I mean, look, I don't think anybody really anticipated a sweep of that magnitude and have the, having the Tigers' bats be so silent. Um, yeah, it was it was a bit shocking. Let's talk about the Giants this offseason. You've got 
Zito, who pitched enormously well, like you just said, in, in the postseason, finally lived up to that big contract. You've got Tim Lincecum, who came out of the pen, was very effective, but here's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. Is he going to go back to being a starter at the beginning of next season, you think? Well, I would think so, Brian. I mean, for, for all the reasons that you mentioned, and I mean, you know, in terms of the salary and whatnot, I mean, he would he would be certainly one of the highest, if not the highest paid reliever in the game. Um, and, you know, and there's nothing to say that um, that he doesn't snap out of, of the doldrums that he's been in and gets himself sorted out. Um, so I'm, I'm certain you would start him there. But, I mean, it was a, it was a, a brilliant stroke having him come out of the pan. Um, he seemed to be okay with it and, and certainly was very, very efficient and effective out of it. So uh, good for the, for the Giants to be creative in, in using him that way. What about Melky Cabrera? We know he was suspended 50 games, performance-enhancing drugs, do you think he returns to the Giants, or have they shut that door? No, they've shut that door, Brian. I mean, they they made it pretty much well known that they were not going to be renewing him. I mean, it's a real shame, right? I mean, it could have been a great story. It would have been interesting. But when you start to see a player like that, you know, that had not performed like that in the past, and then you throw in this situation where you're basically fabricating a, a website and you're taking testosterone, I mean – you know, somebody somebody will probably take a, a rider out on him and, and basically try and get him on the cheap. And I imagine they'll probably have to do that to try and build himself back up. But I mean, you know, I mean, it was an embarrassing thing for the Giants, and the Giants moved past it. And obviously, you know, it's one of those things that um, that he went in and uh, it didn't in, in impact them. Um, as a sidebar, something that's interesting is um, it sounds to me like the Giants are going to vote him a full World Series share. So they obviously saw. Uh, performance enhancing drugs or not, that his performance in the regular season that got them basically into the postseason uh, merited him getting some money for, for the postseason shares. Well, and let's not forget, Melky Cabrera was the MVP of the All-Star Game, and the winner of the All-Star Game gets home field advantage in the World Series, so he also helped them there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is certainly that. I mean, and, and you know, you put all those things together, you could sit there and say, well, you know, they cheated their way in. Well, you know, I don't think the Giants sat there knowingly and sat there and knew about this sort of thing. I mean, it sounds to me like it was one of those situations to where, uh, you know, it was very reminiscent of Ryan Braun's situation where he had elevated levels of testosterone. And then the, the wrinkle was, of course, fabricating this website to try and basically use a loophole and say, look, I had no idea. Uh, it was very unfortunate. Maury, the World Series had its lowest TV ratings ever. It seems like the ratings decrease every year. Is it because this was a sweep and just didn't have that compelling uh, interest level? Or is the World Series brand decreasing? And, and is that concerning to Major League Baseball, you think? Well, I think it's it's probably the former, Brian. I mean, I really think that the problem was is that um, you know, you, you really didn't have compelling storylines. I mean, both the teams had been recently in the World Series, whether it was the Tigers in 2006 or the Giants in, in 2010. Um, there really wasn't, you know, some real compelling storyline in terms of the team matchup. There wasn't really a compelling storyline in terms of the players, although the Giants had this very loose um, environment around them, which I thought was kind of endearing. Um, the blowouts just didn't help. I mean, when you start to see games like that where you're basically seeing one side getting blanked, you know, I don't think that that helped. And, you know, you're going up against college football and, and other sports, you know, to, to basically have that going. And, look, you're in the middle of an election year. I don't I don't put this on baseball losing interest gen generally. I think that there's definitely changes that are going on in terms of the way people watch programming now that is definitely different, even within the last 10 years. I mean, 
whether it's the internet or more options on television, how people's time is, you know, it's really one of those things to where football lends itself and other sports that are basically run by the clock changes how people view stuff. And, uh, you know, until base, you know, baseball's not going to get around this. And the fact that it's a multi-game series, I think, is, is another factor. I mean, the Super Bowl is one of those things to where it's an event. You know when it's going to start. It's an all-day affair. Uh, you know pretty much when it's going to end. Um, and that lends itself to the, you know, the event factor that baseball really has, has, hasn't changed. I guess society has changed more than anything. Joined by Maury Brown of the bizabaseball.com. He's a great follow on Twitter at bizballmaury. Let's talk about Miguel Cabrera, first player since 1967 to win the Triple Crown in Major League Baseball. He's already signed a few marketing deals. How marketable is Miguel Cabrera? Well, that's a great question, Brian. You know, and I don't know whether this is society or, or how you want to read into it, but there have been guys like Albert Pujols who, you know, you would think would be more marketable, especially with the growth in the Hispanic community. You know, there just doesn't seem to be some of the marketability that you're seeing with guys like Derek Jeter um, and, and that you've seen in the past. And I don't know whether that's society or whether it's how baseball is basically framed. Um, the difficulty, of course, is, you know, uh, in, in baseball, you're really only seeing a player occasionally on television, right? I mean, you're seeing him at the plate. And unless you're following the game real closely, you know, you might not even know what a Triple Crown winner is. So, I mean, I think that there is marketability there. But, I mean, the true all-star guy, all-American guy that I think that, that um, baseball needs in some senses or that, that, that I think America needs, for whatever reason, has been lacking in terms of some of the people that are involved in the game. And I find that really kind of, a, A, a shame. I, you know, I'd like to see more of it. Um, and, B, I don't know what it says basically for either baseball or the where society is. I mean, you have a lot of Latino players. And there's a, obviously a huge growing market. We've seen this it, this outcome happen certainly with the presidential election, how much the the growth of the Hispanic community and how that is a huge, um, uh, I would say, marketing area that isn't being leveraged to its full capacity. Uh, I guess that's something for Wall Street and basically marketers to try and address. A player that burst on the scene this past season and played at an MVP-type level was Mike Trout. Maybe Mike Trout is the next Derek Jeter as far as a guy that baseball can really get behind and market and a guy that's going to be around hopefully for the next 15 to 20 years. Well, I mean, it's a great story. I mean, you know, and this comes back to that thing, you know, you have new blood coming into the game and that's a beautiful thing to see all the time. And I don't think anybody really expected to see him. I think a lot of people were projecting, I think, Bryce Harper to be that guy. But it really, I mean, Mike Trout was, you know, blue expectation, I think, out the window. Um, the, the question, of course, is whether he can sustain it. I mean, if you see this next season and you see it maybe a, a season after that, he may be that guy. And, you know, and I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, it's an incredibly great story, especially given the fact that Pujols didn't exactly pan out the way that the Angels wanted to see it. It was a great story for the Angels to have. So, um, you know, kudos to him. He just won the player's choice award for rookie of the year for the American league. Um, I would say, you know, if it hadn't been for Cabrera running the triple crown, you'd have Mike Trout as your AL MVP or the AL most uh, prized player, I guess, for the, for the player's choice award. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the MVP voting to see whether Trout um, has any pull. It's going to be very difficult. I think for the baseball writers to ignore the, the triple crown win for Cabrera. Let's talk about the hot stove. It's going to be heating up soon. 
uh, one of the biggest names on the market, Josh Hamilton. And Josh Hamilton can do anything on a baseball field, but it's well documented his problems off the field. He's 31 years old. If you were a Major League Baseball GM, Maury, what kind of a contract do you give to Josh Hamilton? Well, it's a great question because it was my article uh, just this past week for Baseball Prospectus. There was word that he's seeking a seven-year, $175 million contract. It would put him in the top 10 of the highest-paid players in baseball in terms of total contract dollars, and his average annual value would rank behind only Alex Rodriguez. Um, I, I think it becomes very difficult. His age is certainly part of it. I mean, he's spent an, an incredible amount of time on the DL. He's averaged 123 games a season over his career. That includes, of course, 90 games that he had basically in his quote-unquote rookie year when the Reds basically uh, were allowed to have him called up and he came off of baseball's restricted list after all his drug use and problems that he had early on. But, I mean, there's an inherent risk involved with him. But as I wrote, I mean, you're taking that risk as to whether you get the Josh Hamilton that you get in 2010, which was extraordinary, or even the Josh Hamilton that you got in the first half of this season for the Rangers. I mean, you're weighing that against whether you're going to have somebody on the DL, somebody that gets sick, and somebody that, you know, hopefully it never happens but could fall off the wagon in some senses. That's always going to be a concern for clubs. But, you know, if it isn't a seven-year, $175 million deal, he's going to hit some kind of decent payday. I mean, it will probably be more than decent. It will probably be great. And it's just a matter of who. And and my gut feeling is, is that given the fact that there are teams that have expendable revenues, they are going to be more easily able to take on a, uh, a guy that has more risk associated to them than somebody, another team that doesn't. I mean, your Clevelands of the world or your Royals of the world just can't really absorb the kind of risk that comes along with Josh Hamilton. But the years, I think, in his contractor are concerned basically due to his age. I mean, he's hitting free agency at a very late stage. So, I mean, that's a larger concern, I think, than the overall money situation. I like Josh Hamilton a lot. I would not give him more than three years. That would be tops. I'd give him anywhere between 15 and $20 million a year, but I would not give him more than three years. And you've seen, you know, when you get locked up into long-term contracts, which is our next topic, let's talk about A-Rod, $114 million remaining on his deal with the Yankees. You see the negative side of signing a guy to one of those long-term high-priced contracts. And then, you know, he's in the downside of his career and you're locked into that guy for several years. Do you think the Yankees hang on to him or will they eat the $90 million $95 million or so that it would take to move him to another team? Well, I think that if they're going to move him, that has to happen. I mean, this isn't going to be some kind of traditional trade where you basically get a player for player and that team basically is going to absorb all the, the salary that's involved in it. No, I mean, the Yankees will have to eat part of that money. I mean, that's the only way that's going to happen. And this is a trend that has got to be concerning for baseball. Because what has happened here, Brian, is, is that you're getting – um, players are seeking large amounts of money, and you have clubs that have figured out ways to get it, whether it's been Jason Wirth or whether it's been Albert Pujols, whether we'll eventually see Josh Hamilton. The problem is, is with these deals is basically getting performance out of the last years of, the, of these deals. And you, what you're starting to see is clubs going, well, we can't do short-term deals because then the players seeking so much more money that the average annual value or the percentage of money of our payroll – just kills our flexibility um, in the here and now. So, I mean, if you've got a player chewing up $25 million or more out of your player payroll, I mean, you're starting to bump into luxury tax problems. You're trying to figure out ways to basically keep other players under contract 
So we stretch these deals out, and what you're basically doing is saying, well, we're going to sign the guy for 10 years with the hopes that we get three to maybe five years out of it. And it's just a bad way of we're going about it, but that's the way the market is currently at. And so, I mean, if you want to get that guy and hope that you get some guy that's a real star performer in free agency, I'm afraid that that's how the market is going. I mean, you mentioned Josh Hamilton for that um, shorter window, but the problem is I don't think that you can get it for three years. I don't think you can do it anymore because there'll be some club that'll say, well, we'll at least give you five. And if he's seeking seven, that may be where, you know, that may be the shortest amount of time that you can get a player of his caliber now. Last question for you, uh, looking ahead to next season, the two teams that I'm most interested in watching next year, one, the Boston Red Sox, they've got a new manager. Can they right the ship? Do they do anything in free agency this offseason? And two, the Los, Los Angeles Dodgers, who acquired so many of those players from the Red Sox last year, high-priced players, didn't really gel after they were acquired. Can they gel, and can they challenge the Giants in the NL West? Who are teams besides those that you are looking at as we head into next season? Well, I'm going to be watching the Yankees. I mean, they're, they're certainly older. They certainly have situations. I'm watching Mariano Rivera and whether they're able to be, bring him back. He says he's coming back. Um, I don't I don't know if I could ever envision Mariano Rivera anything other than Yankee pinstripes. It just seems odd to me to see that. Um, there are pitcher problems that they basically have to deal with. Um, the other team, I guess, would be the Mets. I mean, you know, they're really trying to do something to – uh, get R.A. Dickey and David Wright under contract. They just did, I can't believe this, they just deferred a bunch of compensation and granted Jason Bay early free agency, which is, you know, once again, you know, when you start deferring money well past the player's contract time, um, you know, the, the Mets will be on the hook for money well after Jason Bay has long left the Mets, just like they're still on the hook for, for Bobby Bonilla. Um, it does free them up. Um, to potentially do something to, if they don't at least get David Wright, they can hopefully get R.A. Dickey as well. So those are kind of the teams to watch out for. You know, the Orioles are a, an interesting story, I think. Um, they, were, they showed, obviously, some flashes of brilliance this year. I mean, they, you know, when you do what they did this year, they've got to be a team that you're going to want to watch out for in the, in the, uh, in the coming season. So um, I don't think that, when coming back to the Red Sox, I don't think that they're going to do anything dramatic in, in free agency. Um, the Dodgers, on the other hand, I think could be really interesting. I think that they can wind up moving a lot of the parts that they did um, in that trade. That I think the the real bottom line was is that they really wanted Adrian Gonzalez, and strangely enough, they wanted Josh Beckett, which seemed odd. That may have only been for down the stretch. So how Carl Crawford bounces back could be of interest, and certainly whether they move those two players just to keep Adrian Gonzalez, I think will be interesting to watch. That will be definitely very interesting. Anything that you're working on on the bizofbaseball.com or baseball prospectus that we should be uh, keeping our eye out for? Well, I'm certainly going to I'm going to look at something that's kind of interesting. You know, the A's continue to languish in their situation for a stadium and the Rays are in kind of the same situation. So I'm going to be busting down on how relocation works and the difficulties behind it and ranking all the markets. Um, this this is going to kind of look at places like Sacramento, certainly Portland, Las Vegas, and northern New Jersey and kind of breaking it down from a nuts and bolts perspective and then breaking down the difficulties that happen behind that, why television is such a huge part of this situation and makes it so difficult to relocate out of certain markets. That'll be fascinating. Good stuff. Maury Brown from the bizofbaseball.com. Follow him on Twitter at bizballmory. Maury, thanks. Happy holidays, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Hey, same to you, Brian. Have yourself a good day. Thank you.
This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up. I bet you I can tell you what you're thinking about. You'll see a good Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Thanks to all our guests on this week's show, Joe Favorito, Bill Sykin, Jason Cole, and Maury Brown. Again, a reminder, you can find us online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Find our podcast on demand. You can become our Facebook friend or follow me on Twitter. Those icons are located on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com. Griggs, we've got our big end-of-the-year show coming up in December, our top 10 sports business stories of the year. If people want to email their top stories of the year, feel free to do that. Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at sportsbusinessradio.com. But, Griggs, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. Give me one or two of your top sports business stories of the year that's on the radar for you. Well, I just as you were saying this, I was thinking the Olympics because that was always, that's always a big one to hit because of all the stuff that goes on during the Olympics. True. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, well, you got NHL kind of lockout. That's not really that big of a story, but it is kind of big news in the hockey world. I think Lance Armstrong is going to be in the mix. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Definitely. everything that happened with him and the uh, decision to step away from Livestrong, but yeah, Olympics obviously that's a good one because uh, this was an Olympic year and so much business done around the Olympics, but uh, we'll come up with a good list, but we want your input. So again, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can also tweet ideas to me at SB radio. Uh, Griggs, where are you on Twitter? Tell everyone how they can follow you. Cause I know you have some really good, deep insight on Twitter. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, B grizzle 22. Uh, and yeah, very deep insight on, uh, you know, the leaves changing colors in my backyard and <laughs> if I'm raking today or mowing today. That's, that's about as deep as I go. <laughs> hey, and some good family picks and, and oh, things yeah, like fun. that. It's fun. I enjoy it. You know, I saw, uh, Cody Zeller, who is a sophomore at Indiana university, big man there. Uh, he had the decision to stay in college. He could have gone pro. He put out a really funny video, um, but it was fun to see. You know, he was having fun with his brand, and um, I just think it's fun when athletes do things like that. We've seen the Blazers here locally have some fun on Twitter with uh, you know taking pictures of guys while they're asleep and other guys making faces while they're asleep. And so there are good uses of Twitter. I just think there's a lot of guys out there and women who. Uh, misuse it, and that's why we're trying to help them with uh, everything is on the record dot com. Yeah, and I think that's what makes Twitter so fun is because you have those instant pictures of, like you said, <laughs> I think it was Nick Batum took a picture of one of the guys sleeping on the plane, and 
and it's just that stuff is funny. I think that keeps people, uh, you know, uh, fans really active and, and wanting to follow these athletes because it's stuff like that you don't you wouldn't have seen ten years ago. All right, Griggs, good job with our new open. Uh, love hot for teacher from Van Halen. That's oh yeah, good way to open the show. So great job with that. Uh, again, follow me on Twitter at SB Radio for Brian Griggs. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Met a girl in the parking lot, and all I did was say hello. Her pepper spray made it rather hard for me to walk her home, but I guess that's the way it goes. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, uh, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio.